All right. So uh, th this morning, the question is just this: how how do you respond to criticism? How many of you like to be criticised? Don't raise your hand. We love it, right? So some of you I know have got a very thick skin, and when criticism comes, it bounces off, and you're not even aware that you've been criticised because some of you just you just you're thick-skinned. Others of you, of course, are quite tender. And uh, even, a, even a compliment ends up feeling like a backhand uh, criticism, right? Oh, I like your hair today. Oh, what was wrong with it yesterday? <laughs> some of you are like that. Um, some of you believe that you have the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> and don't go look for that in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not there, but I think you know what I mean. Um, or, or you believe that, uh, you know, criticism is one of the five love languages, your love language. If I criticize you, then I must love you, clearly. Um, so some of us are quite like that. Uh, I know that this was certainly the case in, 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 in the church world that I was part of 20 odd years ago. That if you said to someone, I'm just telling you this in love, brother. <laughs> you could say anything right <laughs> i don't know if you ever had those moments but but you could literally say anything you liked to anyone um and, and no matter how harsh and nasty and mean it was as long as you had the phrase i'm saying this in love it was okay it's allowed and you as the receiver of that criticism you just had to take it because it was offered to you in love why, thank you for tearing me into little pieces and stomping all over my heart. So my guess is that not many of us like to be criticized, even if it's constructive criticism. And I, and I think, you know, there are times when, yes, people say things and it's constructive and we should take it to heart and be built up by that. Um, but but it, it's hard to hear that. What's especially hard to hear is unfair criticism or, or unjustified criticism, uh, the, the unhelpful kind. It, it's hard to be misrepresented and to be personally attacked. How do you respond to that kind of unjustified criticism? Perhaps the criticism of a co-worker um, who's actually just trying to undermine what you're doing and move into your territory and take over what you're doing. Or, or trying to take credit for something that you've put in place. And of course, when something like that happens in the church, we're going to read 2 Corinthians 10 this morning, and we're going to read that Paul faces some criticism, and it's a little bit scattered. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, the criticism that he faces is false. It's false accusations. It gets very personal. There's a very personal attack on him, um, and Paul needs to respond to this and defend himself, and he's defending himself not because his ego is bruised and shamed, poor me. He's defending himself because the gospel is at stake. Because the whole purpose of the criticism of Paul by these guys at Corinth is to oust Paul, get rid of him, move in and take his place. And in doing that, kind of redirect what the gospel is all about. And so Paul's self-defense is not just a defense of poor me, shame, I better defend myself. But it's a defense of the gospel and of the church. He just, just doesn't want this church to be hijacked by this bunch of people that he's got to deal with. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to read from verse 7. You are looking only on the surface of things. 
If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, or that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority of the Lord, uh, sorry, the, the authority that the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be, uh, to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we're present. We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field that God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limit by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. But let him who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord so I want to try and highlight this morning four different ways that Paul was unfairly criticized or unfairly judged by these people in Corinth and to see if there's some sort of parallel that we can see in ourselves and to see how we respond to that and how we are often just like the guys who opposed Paul. So just to look at those four different things this morning. The, the first words that we read there this morning was, you're looking only at the surface. I think other translations say th th things along the lines of, you need to look a little deeper at things. The Corinthians seemed to be very quick to make a judgment about Paul based on very superficial, what you see before your eyes, judgment. They were basing their um, rejection of Paul on, on, on the superficial, on the surface. And he actually quotes what they're saying where he says that you guys say that I'm forceful in my letters, but my appearance is unimpressive. So apparently Paul had an unimpressive appearance. He was unimpressive in person on stage in church. In other words, he didn't look too good. Now, we don't really know what Paul looked like. Uh, he didn't take any selfies. Um, no photographs survive of him. None of them. No one even made a painting of the guy. But what we do have is um, from about maybe about 80 years after Paul wrote this letter, another letter was written and it's got some dodgy things in it, but it contains in there a description of Paul. And a lot of a lot of archaeologists and historians and theologians and whatever think that it's a, a fairly accurate picture of him. They say that this is very likely a very well-preserved oral tradition handed down from one generation to the next. And it's fairly close in time. 
so, so there's a good guess that what was written isn't actually a fairly accurate description of Paul. And here's, here's what's written about Paul. Paul was a, a man of middling size. So in other words, he wasn't particularly big. He was a little guy. His hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked. His knees were far apart. <laughs> he had large eyes and eyebrows that met. <laughs> With a nose that was somewhat long or hooked. <laughs> full of grace. And I just love that little bit at the end, full of grace, right? This guy is but ugly, but he's full of grace. So that kind of covers it, right? So Paul is described as basically being a bandy-legged, bald hunchback with bulging eyes and a monobrow. <laughs> this is not exactly um, very complimentary, is it? And he's not the kind of guy that you necessarily want up in front of you. And I guess if, 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 that, is, if that really is a true, accurate picture of what, of what Paul looked like, then, then we understand exactly why the Corinthians were saying what they were saying. He's really not that impressive in person. And in fact, you, you kind of hear a little bit in the background of this of, how could God possibly use someone so ugly? I mean, if, if you are the apostle of Jesus, surely, <laughs> surely Jesus. Yeah, Kevin's just said that there's hope for Ronnie. <laughs> True story. But, but you know, there are these people at Corinth who are going, if, if God is going to use someone, he's going to use someone good looking. He's not going to use someone like Paul, bandy-legged and hunchbacked and bulging eyes. I mean, it's, it's impossible that God could use someone with a bald head. Um, just, you know, it's just not right. Um, surely, surely God would use someone who can at least stand up straight and would have the bare minimum of two eyebrows. You know, that, that's, that's surely the minimum that you look for, right? Isn't it true that even today we make snap judgments on people based on what they look like? And, 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 you know, if you, if you took Paul and, and put him next to the latest heartthrob, who is that at the moment? I don't know. Adam Levine? No, not anymore. Who is it now? Uh, uh, there you go. You know, if you put Paul next to him, it, I mean, that, it just doesn't compare, does it? Heck, even I look like Adonis compared to Paul. <laughs> and back then, in Greek culture... They had a very idealized image of what the ideal man looked like. And the emphasis in Greek culture was this idealized man. And you can you go wander around Greece and Rome today and have a look at all the sculptures and all the art. And it's all very much the idealized man, what he looks like. In, in our culture, we have the idealized woman. And it's the woman on the magazine that's kind of held up as this is the ideal. But in Paul's culture, it was the, the male physique that was held up as the ideal. And Paul is a long way from that ideal. And yet we know, we know that judging people by their looks is a superficial way to judge them. And yet we do it. So I, I remembered reading about this a couple of years ago. So I went and looked for it this week. I found seven different university studies that were done that show how businesses judge people 
based on looks. So pay attention. Tall people get paid more money. Um, apparently in one study, um, the University of Florida found that for every inch of height, you can earn up to $700 a year more per inch. So the taller you are, the more likely you are to get a better salary. Fat people get paid less. <laughs> so Kevin, if you're wondering why you're not a millionaire yet, there you go. Alright, so fat people get paid less. And it is true, I'm afraid, blondes get paid more. Alright, University of Queensland studied 13,000 Caucasian women. Blondes were paid on average 7% more than the rest. Workers who work out get paid more. So if you exercise during the week, um, you can apparently earn up to, uh, what was it? Those who regularly exercise more can earn up to um, $80 a week more in income. This one's hilarious. Uh, women who wear makeup get paid more. And, and uh, studies show that women who wear makeup rank higher in terms of competence and trustworthiness. Now, it's not to say that they are more competent, but rather that they're perceived as being more competent. So, so ladies, lay it on with a trowel. That's clearly the answer, right? <laughs> handsome people get paid handsomely. The better looking you are, you get the, the better you get paid. However, if you're too pretty. So apparently you can be a super handsome guy and that's fine. But if you're an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous woman, then there's a good chance that you'll be prejudiced against and you won't be given masculine jobs. So ladies, if you feel like you're being undervalued at work, it's because you're just too darn gorgeous. That's just it. <laughs> Yeah, you put all that together and I wonder why I'm not more wealthy than I am. <laughs> but looks apparently count. And of course, the whole thing about looks leads to stereotyping, doesn't it? So I, I wish he was here this week, but Damon sent me a video. I just have to share it with you. Um, and I just need to make it very clear that this is from Damon and not from me. And so the blame lies on him. But he sends me a video this week where um, uh, the story goes like this. A guy's walking along perhaps at, at work, and there's a, a, a blonde sitting at the desk, and there's a pen on the floor. He picks up the pen, and he says to her, excuse me, is this your pen? So she looks at him, takes the pen, has a look at it, writes on the paper, and says, yeah, it is mine. And he says, well, how can you be sure? And she's like, duh, it's my handwriting. <laughs> so how do we get this, right? That University studies show that blondes get paid 7% more, and yet the stereotype in our society is that blondes are, you know, struggle. <laughs> and whether that's humorous or offensive, I'm not sure. But, but, but I mean, that, that just leads into the whole, a whole range of stereotyping issues, doesn't it? Um, where we get to the point of racial profiling. And that was that, that's become a, a, a major issue in our society, where you're, you're, where police will determine whether or not you should be pulled over based on based on your racial profile. Just because you have a beard doesn't make you a terrorist. America is still dealing with the whole issue of of driving while black. Um, I was listening to to a Christian hip hop artist a little while ago saying that when he drives, when he goes out to drive somewhere, when he's going to a concert, wherever he's going. He, 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 he makes sure 
that the, the, the baby chairs are in the back of the car and that his wedding ring is on clear display so that not if, but when he gets pulled over for being black, his hope is that the police who pull him over can go, oh, he's a family man, there's a baby chair in the car, he's okay. Because our racial profiling, we just have these stereotypes. And it finds its way into church so often as well. I'm sure I told you the story a little while ago, but I'll, I'll repeat it in case you've forgotten. But a friend of mine was telling me of a church in Durban, so not in this area, so I don't try to figure out which one, but a church in Durban, where apparently, in order to be in the band, and in order to get on stage, you've got to be gorgeous. Now, I'm not sure if the elders of the church actually hold to this, but this was communicated to my friend, who is a pastor of a church. It was communicated to him by one of the band members in this particular church. That Jesus only wants beautiful and attractive people on the stage because attractive people attract people to the gospel, apparently. And if you're halfway gorgeous, when you get on stage, Jesus makes you all the way gorgeous. <laughs> right? Now, now, Kevin says it doesn't work. I just want you to think back to the last time our band was on a stage. And, and, and you, can, you can see that we, we obviously live by the same principle, don't we? <laughs> I mean, our first question when it comes to do you want to be part of the band is, is not can you play a musical instrument, but how gorgeous you are. For many churches, well, let me not say many, for some churches, for some people, uh, the church is cool because the pastor is cool. And the pastor's got to be hip, cool, and trendy because image is everything. And so he's got to wear the trendy shoes and the skinny jeans. And he's, you know, um, he's got he's to match his image to, to what is society, what is culture's image of hip, cool, and trendy. Because surely that's how people come to the gospel, right? Through hip, cool, and trendy people up front on stage. And I'm not suggesting that the pastor can be a slob. I do my best to make sure that I wear matching socks on a Sunday morning. Um, but I, I think we've lost something in society, haven't we? We really have. I was reading this week that if you go back 100 years, your CV, your letter of reference, was all about character. And when you look at letters of reference or CVs today, it tends to be about personality. And so guys who've done some research on this have, have pulled out the, the common words that appeared on a letter of reference 100 years ago and letter of reference of today. 100 years ago, you would think, find things like morality, virtue, and reputation. In letters of re reference today, you find things like charisma, fascinating and attractive. And how we've moved from character to personality. And so we have... TV personalities who have no character. If you've followed a little bit of the news this week and you've followed a little bit of what's gone on with Ellen DeGeneres, I mean DeGeneres, right? So she's, she's apparently, well she is, she's a, she's a TV personality. And on her shows, she's all friendly and nice and wonderful and da 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 da. But it's all come out in this last week or so that the, the studio that she works in and the, the whole show that she's part of, is it's just a toxic work environment. And so we have a TV personality with no real character to go with it. And how that sneaks in, just not just into the church, but how, how we need to be aware that that so often sneaks into us. How easy it is for us to make value judgments based on personality 
snap judgments based on, on the superficial instead of looking a little deeper. And it wasn't just his looks that Paul is criticized for, he's, he's criticized for his speech as well. They say his speech amounts to nothing. And again, in a day and a time where, where oratory was, was a significant thing, you'd go out on a Sunday afternoon to listen to someone speak. And the idea wasn't to go and listen to the content of what he said, but rather to, to be moved by what was said. And so it's not the content that's important, but the fact that you feel some kind of emotional response to the speaker. And so, so the, the critics of, of Paul here are saying, well, he, you know, he, he gets up and he rambles on, but you know, people fall asleep and fall out of windows. Um, there's not much pizzazz in what Paul is saying. There's, there's not much, his delivery style is just lacking. And you might remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with cleverly uh, organized arguments and fancy speech. I came with a simple message. I came to preach Christ and him crucified. And again, so often within the church, the, the, the deal is it's, it's about the delivery and not the content. It's about the, the style. It's about what goes on surrounding, right? It's about the flashing lights and the, the painted backdrop and the, the mood music being played in the background while the preacher preaches. Um, and it's about stirring the emotion as opposed to the content of the message. And because we're a superficial society, I think we're so often quick to judge churches even based on superficial things. And so when we're looking for a church to join, it's so easy to make a superficial judgment, right? Well, they're big. They serve good coffee. The band is good looking. The pastor is, has a real personality on stage. Now let's join. And in a superficial society, that's good enough. But surely there's more than that. So Paul is judged for uh, on superficial on a su very superficial basis. The second thing they question though is Paul's authority. There, there's a whole thing of who's the boss going on here, and Paul talks about authority and what he'll use his authority for. And it seems like it's not a case of Paul has no authority, but rather that Paul doesn't know what to do with his authority. Look at us; we're an authority of these super these so-called super apostles at Corinth. They're saying we've taken charge. We've taken control. We know what authority is about and we're using our authority well. And so we're going to lord it. Some people just love to be led. I think that's just it. Some people just love to be led. Um, some people are very quick to hand over authority and responsibility to someone else. Um, we need an apostle to tell us what to do. We need the prophet to, to tell us exactly what we need to do because, you know, rather let somebody else make those decisions for me and I bear no responsibility for them. It's why we Baptists are independently minded people. Uh, it's why we came into being because we don't want other people making these decisions for us. We can't bear the thought that somebody else in church has the power to decide what brand of coffee we'll serve after the service. No, no. We'll have a church meeting so that we can all decide on these important meetings and those important details, right? So, of course, there are Baptist churches that lose it where the congregation completely controls. But Paul's concerned about here about the other side where the elders are in complete control with total authority and there is no accountability. And what's happening with these Corinthian guys, these super apostles, is that they, they're using their authority 
to, to rule the roost, to take charge. And they're using their position and their influence to make sure they're looked after. They're using their power to control the people in the church and making sure that they're gathering the wealth, that they've got the, the accolades, that it's all about them. And so Paul says, I'll boast about my authority. And here's what I'm going to boast about. Here's what my authority is. I'm going to boast about the fact that I've been called to build you up, not tear you down. I'm going to build you up, not build myself up, which is what these other guys are doing. They're just building themselves up. They're using the authority that God has given them in order to build themselves up. It's all about themselves and their power. And the process of building themselves up actually just tears the church down. It's what misused authority always does. Misused authority given into the hands of one or two people who think that they're all powerful destroys. It's why we don't like dictatorships. It's why as the West we've moved towards increasing democracy. Because we, want, we don't want power in the hands of just one who will then use and abuse and, and lord it over. We want accountability from our leaders. And yes, we find that in our democracy, we're seeing the abuse of our leaders. We're seeing, it's in the news every week now, every other day, how our leaders are using their authority to line their own pockets. And just in case you're wondering, it's not just here, it's not just South Africa. I was interested to read this week that a, a lawmaker in Louisiana has been suspended and is under investigation for siphoning $600,000 for her wedding. Um, so it's not just here that people abuse the positions of authority to line their own pockets. But it's why we at least have some measure of democracy so that there is some measure of accountability. Paul says the issue isn't authority. The issue is what you do with that authority. It's how you use that authority. And these other guys in Corinth, they're using it for their self-interest and to control others. When Paul says authority has to do with service and building others up. And again, as we look at modern church, we've got to say it, 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 there's this, this tricky thing of getting the balance between being elder-led but being accountable to the congregation. And having both of those in place. And I'm well aware that some Baptists have lost the plot on the one side and are completely congregational controlled. And that's not helpful at all. But there are plenty of other churches that are completely on the other side where it's all about the power in the hands of one or two. And they tend to say things like, touch not the Lord's anointed. But there's no room for that in the church of God. And again, I think part of the problem is that the Corinthians were just looking at things superficially. They had equated authority with control. And they were applauding these so-called super apostles for taking a firm control of the things in the church and criticizing Paul for being too soft and too gentle. And yet, it's Paul who's building the church up. Thirdly, Paul gets a little bit sarcastic here. It gets into the issue of unfair comparisons, where he says, ooh, I dare not compare myself to you guys, right? Don't you love how he says this at verse, I don't know, 6, 12, 13. I dare not compare myself to them, 
They compare themselves with themselves. They're measuring themselves against themselves. That, that, that's, that's kind of a weird thing to do, right? When you compare yourself to yourself. So how tall am I compared to myself? Well, I find that I'm exactly the right height. Isn't that amazing? If my height is the standard for what perfect height is, well, how do I compare? Perfectly. That's kind of what's going on here. These guys are saying, well, what, what should we compare ourselves to? I know. Let's compare ourselves to ourselves. And how are we doing? <laughs> We're doing just great. Now, now there are times, look, so, sometimes you'll have heard something like this and you probably don't like it. I wish you could just be more like your brother. Or I wish you could be more like your sister. Or your cousin. Or your co-worker. Or that church down the road. Or, uh, uh, those comparisons get put in place and they're not great, are they? Sometimes perhaps it's legitimate because you're bone idle and the person you're being compared to actually does some work. And uh, yes, you need to have a swift kick to get yourself going. But oftentimes those kind of comparisons are not helpful at all. What's going on here is that there's this little select group who selected themselves and they're busy patting themselves on the back, telling each other how wonderful each other are. And they've got this little group about, oh, we're going to self-promote one another. I'm going to write out a little thing for you to say, he's a wonderful person. And Paul's like, where does your letter of approval come from? Where does your letter of commendation come from? Whose approval are you seeking? And don't you love that at the end of this little passage where Paul says, my condemnation, my commendation is from Jesus. And it's his approval I seek. And if you're seeking the approval of your best friends, maybe you're looking for approval in all the wrong places. It's the commendation of Christ that we're seeking. Now it seems that these people in Corinth were saying Paul doesn't even try. I mean the least he could do is write a letter about how wonderful he is and all the things that he's done. I mean, if Paul was really worth paying any attention to, he'd have a good ad campaign going, just boosting how wonderful he is. And you'd all come to hear everything that's great about him. He'd have a nice glossy, glossy pamphlet with his picture on the front. Well, maybe not his picture, maybe a Photoshop picture of Paul with two eyebrows um, and a nose job. I don't know. Um, but wouldn't he write a letter of reference and, and fill it with all sorts of attractive deeds and visions and miracles and power and money and all all the trappings that you associate with success because these super apostles say that's what's in our cv those are the things that we're commending ourselves by you can tell that we're awesome by how great we look you can tell we're awesome by how much money we've got in the bank you can tell how awesome we are because we get you to shed a few tears on a sunday morning because we can move you and paul says yep I'm not going to say much at all, because I'm not about commending myself to you. It's about Jesus commending me and his approval that I'm looking for. You know, there's a little bit extra we could say here about this. I think the whole thing of we're going to measure ourselves against ourselves. To be honest, that's exactly where we are as a society. I met with a guy two weeks ago, not connected to our church in any way, but he phoned because he needed to speak to someone spiritual <laughs> and he came and he sat in my study and told me his long story 
and um, told me a few things about himself. He's done some recreational drugs. He's dabbled in voodoo, but he's a good person. And I just think, well, 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 good by whose standards? Well, good by his own standards, of course, which is exactly what our society does. We determine what we think is good, and once we've written up our own list of rules, we compare ourselves to that. And it's amazing how often we, we meet our own standards. Whose standards are we actually measured against, though? We're not measured against the standards of Jesus. But when we measure ourselves against ourselves, we're great. And when our society does that, society's wonderful. Whose approval do you seek? And I know we all want to be liked. We all like to be liked. We want people to think nice things of us. We want a measure of approval from friends and family and peers and the church. We want people to nod and to say, well done. Whose approval are we really craving? And sometimes we'll do silly things in order to get the approval of people around us. We might even be willing to sacrifice our values and our standards and our principles in order to gain approval from people around us. Surely it's the approval of Christ that we're seeking. Surely we want his commendation. Surely we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet so often it seems like we're wanting others to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We so quickly get into the game of comparing ourselves to others. We compare our looks. We compare our homes. We compare our net worth. And it's all just superficial. How foolish, Paul says. Who are you really trying to impress? Which leads to Paul's last thing, his last point, the last thing about boasting. Who are you going to boast about? What are you going to boast about? These apostles, these super apostles, they, they're all about boasting. They're all about, look at us. Look at what we've got. Look at what we've achieved. Look at what we've done. But Paul points out, you're, you're actually boasting about my accomplishments. Who started the church? Who established it? Who put its leaders in place? Who's built it up? And yet you're claiming that it's all you're doing. Paul says, that, that, was, that was all my work. That was the foundation that I laid with the gospel and with Christ. It's got nothing to do with these new arrivals. We're going to read over the next couple of weeks and the next couple of chapters um, how these guys want to boast about super spiritual mystical experiences that they've had. They're going to boast about dreams and visions and revelations and, and miracles and crowds and adulation. These are the things that we'll boast about. And Paul says, I'm not going to boast about those things. He says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Which again gets these super apostles going, what kind of person boasts in their weakness? Surely we're victors in Christ. Surely we should be strong and stand and we're always a winner, never a loser. And Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness. In fact, Paul says, you want to boast? Let, let me do this. And he says, let me take my shirt off. You can count the scars on my back. The amount of times I've been beaten. That's something to boast about. And these other guys are saying, no, that's failure. What a waste, Paul. That's for in a couple of weeks' time, though. But what Paul says here today is, you guys are boasting as a means of, of promoting self. 
But Paul says, let me boast a little bit too. And he says, here's my boast. My, I hope that your faith is growing and that the gospel is spreading. Paul says, if I'm going to boast about anything, that's what I want to boast about. Not about what I've got, not about what I've achieved, not about what spiritual visions I've had. I want to boast about this, that your faith is growing. That your faith is growing. It's often hard to evaluate the success of a church. How do you measure how well we're doing? I mean, you can measure it by the number of people that are here today. 2, 4, 6, 10, 12, 14. There's 18, oh, 19 of us this morning. Is that success or fail? We can measure the church by how much money ends up in the offering bag this morning. And the answer will be zero, because we're not taking an offering. And then we, so how do you measure the success of a church? And it's so often that we want to measure it by, by measurable things like that. But then you read something like this where Paul says, here's what I want to see, that your faith has grown. Now how do you measure that? And yet it's worth, it's worth me asking the question, right? Has your faith grown? Are you moving on in faith? Are you learning more of Jesus? Do you, do you love him more now than you did a year ago? Has your knowledge of him increased? Is your faith in him deepening? If, if the answers to those questions are yes, then that's a good reason for the church to boast. We'll boast in that. And then Paul says, I want to boast that the gospel will spread from you to others. That we may preach the gospel further afield. And again, Paul isn't saying that, that lots of people respond to the gospel. Although we do want that. God calls us to be fruitful, not just faithful. So we want to see some fruit. But Paul's concern is not so much the fruit, but just the fact that the gospel is being preached. Paul's reason for boasting is not that the church has doubled in size or that he somehow managed to get an upgrade on his flight to Corinth. Those aren't the things that he boasts in. He's going to boast in their increased faith and the spread of the gospel. That's what we should be boasting about. Whenever you go to a pastor's conference or meet with other pastors, hey, how's your church doing? And do you want to say, well, we've doubled in size in the last month. <laughs> um, our income has tripled. Someone just left us a million rand. You'd love to say, I'd love to say those kind of things. What I really should be saying is, their faith is deepened. They love one another. They love Jesus. The gospel is spreading through their work in the community. The word boast appears 20 times in these couple of chapters. Because the word boasting is a big deal. And when Paul talks here about boasting, we, I think we sometimes think in terms of, you know, oh, my car's bigger than your car, nah, 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 right? Uh, I've got bigger muscles than you. Nah, nah. But that's not the boasting that Paul's talking about. Another word to use for boasting would be glory. And so the, the thing is this, what do you glory in? What is the thing that is most significant to you? What is the thing that gives you value and worth and significance? That's what you're boasting in. You're saying, this is the thing that if I have this, I'll have it all. And then you see verse 17 where Paul says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who glories, glory in Jesus. That Jesus is our glory. Jesus 
is our significance. He is our value and worth. It's all in Him. You know, that verse is a, uh, him who glories, glory in the Lord, is, is, is directly from the book of Jeremiah. And I just want to read you the little section that it comes from in Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23 and 24 is where it's from. Where he says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. People who know about spiritual success don't gloat about their, their well-furnished mind, their physical well-being, or their riches. To enjoy the benefits of a good education, to be fit, to, uh, or to, be, to, to luxuriate in fabulous wealth, is nothing compared to knowing and understanding God and being known by Him. And so let him be your boast. Let him be your glory. Let his words be your commendation and approval. Let's pray. And so Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that we boast in you. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we are superficial in our judgments, when we're quick to condemn others because of what we see on the surface forgive us those times when we want to boast in our riches our strength our wisdom whatever the case may be forgive us those moments oh lord instead may we submit to you may we compare ourselves not with ourselves but may we seek the commendation and approval of jesus christ our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Next week is communion, so please bring some uh, communion uh, bread and some grape juice. And it's also uh, the week that we traditionally collect groceries for to, to deliver up to Thousand Hills. I spoke to Vicar two, two, three weeks ago when we gave him, the, or three weeks ago when we gave him the last lot. And he just told me again, the majority of this goes to orphan-headed homes, children-headed homes, um, filled with orphans. And so, big thank you to those of you who have delivered and contributed and helped us with that. Just one thing, if you are going to deposit money into the church bank account, make sure it's clearly marked for Thousand Hills. And when you go to then deposit your tithe, make sure you change the reference. And uh, don't end up giving stuff to Thousand Hills that you intended for the church. Or vice versa. So uh, we will, uh, that being said, we will see some of you next week. And you will see us online.